I'm Kara Miller. This week on Innovation Hub, evolution shaped our bodies into what they are today, for better and for worse. It's so not optimal. It's just not what an engineer would design if they were designing from scratch. But of course, we know that natural selection and evolution does not work like an engineer. Then Amazon isn't the only company trying to get a sweet deal from cities. There's a bunch of really negative examples in the Kansas City area where often called the Kansas City Border War, where companies move back and forth across the Kansas and Missouri border, and they're counted as a new investment. Plus, you know that millions of people were killed in World War I, but around the same time, a virus you probably have not heard much about killed far more. Even though it was a much bigger disaster in terms of the number of victims, it kind of got lost in that easier story to tell. That's all coming up next on Innovation Hub. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. It's probably a safe guess, if you're like just about everybody else on the planet, that you're not completely 100% happy with your body. Even the model Cindy Crawford once noted that when she gets up in the morning, she does not look like Cindy Crawford. But the truth is, your problems aren't just cosmetic. They go way deeper than that. You've got retinal cells that are on backwards. You've got part of a tailbone for a tail you don't have. You probably need some sort of technology, either glasses or contacts, just to read a book. You get more colds than you really should, and the list goes on. Now, do not panic here, but the honest truth is, you're a mess. Nathan Lentz writes about why exactly we are such messes in his new book, Human Errors, a panorama of our glitches from pointless bones to broken genes. He's also a professor of biology at John Jay College at the City University of New York. Nathan, thanks for your time. Uh, It's my pleasure to be here. So what first got you thinking about all the things that evolution got wrong when it comes to the human body? Well, it's funny. Actually, two things got me thinking about it. Number one is this idea that a lot of biologists have and um, uh, non-biologists and biologists that the body should be perfect, that Mm. evolution produces perfection. Uh, And I sort of call that the new creationism uh, because really that's not how evolution works at all. Evolution sort of does the best it can so that you can survive long enough to reproduce. And it really doesn't care about getting things perfect. Right, right. So that, that was one part of it. But the actual flaws that fascinate me the most are the flaws in our genes, but also the flaws in our anatomy. Hmm. Um, because it, it's so not optimal. It's just not what an engineer would design if they were designing from scratch. But of course, we know that natural selection and evolution does not work like an engineer. They don't take a situation and try to build something perfect. You have what you have. Tiny little tweaks and tugs is the best that evolution can do. Right, right. And you talk about like people, you know, go into museums and they look at like the human form, like, you know, the David by Michelangelo and they say, wow, the human body is so beautiful and so amazing. And like you say, in some ways, so perfect. And you say, like, not at all. Like, we have no idea. There are things wrong all over the place. That's right. I mean, it is beautiful, the human body, and what it can do is amazing. But we have flaws both big and small. I mean, let's talk about just big, obvious things. Okay. We have one opening 
through our neck that we convey both food and air through. What could possibly go wrong? Right. <laughs> um, and choking, of course, is a huge hazard, especially among children. And humans have an especially badly designed throat. Um, we, we brought our larynx up very high so that we could make um, you know, lots of interesting noises, and then it dropped down a little bit so that we could make vowel sounds. All along, it made choking more likely. So mm. we choke a lot more than other animals because our throat's just not very well designed. And, and thousands of people in the U.S. die every year from choking. And this is not like a little thing, a person or two. This is thousands of people every year because, as you say, food and air are trying to fit through the same tiny hole, and sometimes that does not work. The same tiny hole. And there are other designs that are even out there in nature. I mean, dolphins don't have this problem, right, because they move their nostrils all the way to their back. Um, you know, they have a blowhole. And even birds, uh, they have nostrils that go directly to the lungs and don't pass through the throat. So they can have a huge meal in their mouth like a snake. Snakes and birds both do this. Um, and they can breathe just fine even mm -hmm. when their throat is full of food. Mm -hmm. So what we have is not even the best among our fellow vertebrates. Mm -hmm. we, we really don't have a very good uh, throat when it comes to that. It does well most of the time if you don't choke to death, you know, bully for you. But the point <laughs> is that we could design it better if we could design from scratch. But evolution just doesn't design things from scratch. You, you talked about how in some ways what evolution cares about, it, it's very sort of tunnel vision, right? You just need to reproduce and then the sort of the goal has been accomplished and whatever happens after that doesn't really matter. I, I want to ask you about that because I, I used to have a biology teacher in high school and I remember him saying he had very poor eyesight. And I remember him saying that, you know, long ago, like if he was on the African savanna, like his ancestors had been, he would have gotten eaten by a lion or something because he wouldn't have seen it coming. Um, but, you know, now that he was living in the modern world, he had glasses, he was fine, he could live his normal life, you know, just like anybody who had perfect eyesight. But so many people have bad eyesight. How is it possible that all the people with bad eyesight didn't get eaten on the African savanna and leaving us with like everybody who has perfect eyesight? Well, that's a really interesting example because, as you said, about 40 percent of the people in the United States and Europe require corrective lenses. Mm -hmm. It's about 75 percent of the population of Asia. So you're talking about most of the human population don't have very good eyes. And what that tells us, because if you look at other animals, uh, especially like birds and other things that hunt with their vision, mm -hmm. they don't have these poorly designed eyes. What mm -hmm. it tells us that we can tolerate this is that we have used other skills to survive. And so if you imagine life on the African savanna, if every single person was a hunter, then I bet you we would have had much better vision than we have. Mm -hmm. But what you have over the last million years or so is pretty extensive division of labor. And so there were many ways that mm -hmm. you could provide value, many ways that you could contribute that didn't require excellent vision or at least excellent faraway vision. If you could see up close just fine, there's lots that you could do. So I think the story of the human body and why we are particularly flawed among other primates, is that we evolved these big brains, which allowed things like division of labor and other sort of technological innovations that really reduced the pressure on our bodies to perform optimally, because we could escape that lion by having a social network that warns us about lions. Um, so uh, the big brain right, obviously right. gave us enormous advantages, but it also removed pressure on our bodies to be perfect. We really didn't have to be so good anymore. Um, as you said, as long as you could sort of scrape by to reproduce 
reproductive age, it didn't matter if you were healthy, didn't matter if you were obese or not. A lot of things just didn't matter as mm-hmm. long as you made it long enough to reproduce. And then, of course, what humans have is continued selection later in life uh, by contributing to the group and your children and even their children. So we have this very highly social structure. We rely on one another so that each one of us do- really doesn't have to be perfect. Hmm. Another thing that uh, I had never thought about, but now that I think about it, it makes sense, is that we get sick more than most other animals. And I wonder how that evolved. It does not seem helpful. I mean, you know, the times when I've had a cold or a flu, I was not helpful to anybody with anything. So it seems like uh, a really unhelpful evolution to be able to get the cold or like get the flu. Why do we have that? And why do like dogs not get the flu very much, for example? Right. Well, there's two things that are going on in particular since you mentioned uh, upper respiratory infections. The first one is a really poor design in our nasal cavity. So the, the largest nasal sinuses, which are right in your cheekbones, the drainage pipe for those cavities is at the top of the chamber rather than at the bottom like you would expect. Mm. What plumber is going to put a drain at the top of a chamber and not the bottom? So what that means is when you're when you're healthy, you know, there's no really particulates. And no, everything's fine. Your cilia can sort of move the mucus up to the top and it drains. But if you have any little congestion, any bacteria, virus, even just dusts and stuff can get in there, then you're working against gravity and, and you lose. Not only that, the drainage pipe happens to be very small too, which is another poor design. So what happens, uh, dogs don't have that problem. They have these huge snouts and they have really good flow of the mucus in their nasal cavities. Even our other apes have much better designed nasal cavities than we have. We have a nasal cavity that is almost designed to clog up easily. Mm-hmm. And that's why most of us get four or five colds every single year. Right. Why didn't natural selection fix this? Well, you right. rarely die of it. Right, right, right. right. So that's one reason. Another reason is that we used to live in much smaller communities. And so I don't think early humans got nasal infections near as often as we do. Mm. We we live in these in the sort of the global village, so we're passing around these pathogens right, in much right. larger numbers. So uh, civilization, of course, made all this worse. But if we had better designed nasal sinuses, even in the global village, we would not have the uh, upper respiratory infections that we have, at least not as often. Do you think that our success, because I think, you know, I, I think many people would think that, like, humans are a very successful species. There's a lot of us. Uh, we live in a lot of different climates and we're doing OK in very hot and very cold climates. Um, do you think that our success, like, in spite of these mistakes or is somehow our mistakes almost tied in with our success? Like, what's the relationship? I think there is a strong relationship between our flaws and our need to have innovation. So we basically solved problems of our body using our brain. So, okay. so we can live in the Arctic Circle because we're smart enough to figure out how to invent clothing and uh-huh. use proper clothing. Right. And uh, we can also live in sub-Saharan Africa uh, and, and the rainforest and the challenges there. We live in deserts. We live in so many different climates, not because our bodies are so robust. They're pretty robust. But what's really robust about us is we figure things out. We have this big brain that allows us to solve the problems. But as I said, that, that sort of reduces the pressure on the on the physical form uh, to be perfect. When you have this brain that can sort of figure out how to do it, then your body doesn't need to. Right. I might also yeah. point out um, our big brains, which have made us very successful up till now, um, really are, might be our biggest flaw of all. Because if you consider all of the biggest threats to our existence right now, every single one of them is of our own making. Hmm. We're not being competed out by some competitor. A right. new predator hasn't come in. An asteroid isn't on its way that we know of. Every single problem we have is of our own making because our yeah. brains, big as they are, cannot really think or plan more than a generation at a time. So right. 
we're very bad at long-term planning. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Nathan Lentz. He's a biology professor at John Jay College, part of the City University of New York. He's also author of the book, Human Errors, A Panorama of Our Glitches from Pointless Bones to Broken Genes. In some ways, I feel like there's two buckets of problems with the human body. One is things that in some ways are not really problems uh, or wouldn't have been problems, you know, on the African savanna. So like obesity, it's not actually necessarily that bad that we can store calories really well. It just might be bad now. You know, in 2018, that's not so great. Then there's the other things, which is like the drainage of our uh, sinuses and like our retinal cells on backwards. Do you feel like that's true that there's the actual mistakes and then there's like things that were fine thousands of years ago but aren't working so well now. That's right. I, I would even add a third category. I, I, t- to repeat yours, one of our, our categories of flaws are we're just in a different world than the one we are adapted to right, live in. Right, right. So we would call that sort of mismatch uh, features or mismatch diseases are sometimes called. Uh, so that's one category. Another category of flaws are just incomplete adaptation, where we almost got it right, and then we must have gotten it good enough, and we just c- didn't continue <laughs> to improve. Stopped. Yeah, so, okay. Yeah. So, I mean, if you think about our tail, we have a tailbone. So, first of all, the bones are unnecessary, and anybody who has uh, had their tailbone removed does absolutely fine. But there's also even muscles attached to these fixed bones as if they could flex this tail that no longer exists. Right. So, I mean, they don't really hurt us that much, but it's just clearly incomplete uh, evolution of that feature. But then there's a third category, which I really think are just outright flaws, and there's no other way to see them <laughs> as such. Um, and if you, one that we haven't talked about yet is we have a nerve, it's a cranial nerve called the recurrent laryngeal nerve, and it leaves your brain and goes to your larynx, which is right in your throat. Right. But it doesn't make a straight line. It dips all the way down to your chest, loops around the great vessels of your heart that leave huh. your heart, and then comes back up to the neck. So, And it does this in every single person, this silly loop-de-loop. But it's just going from your brain to your throat, but it takes a detour and goes down around your heart. That's right. So it's three times longer than it needs to be. Why? Well, because because it sort of just got tangled up with those vessels in our in our evolution. Interestingly, there's an inferior laryngeal nerve, which makes the same route, the brain to the throat, but it does it directly. So evolution was able to fix that route, but not the other one, not the other nerve. Right. Are are there uh, diseases, I believe the top two killers in the U.S. are heart disease and cancer. Um, Are there diseases that you think are tied in with some of these like just kind of evolutionary mistakes in our body? Or do heart disease and cancer have other causes? No, I think actually most of our diseases are um, at least made worse by poor design. And and heart disease is a good example, actually. Heart disease is is in some ways uh, an artifact of our immune system. So we have pretty good immune systems, but uh, most people don't realize this, but but congestive uh, heart disease is actually an immune response. It's an inflammatory response in Mm. the blood vessels, in the blood vessel, the great uh, coronary vessels. And so um, if we could just get a hold of our immune system, which, by the way, kills us in all kinds of other ways, too, mm-hmm. when it comes to allergies or right. autoimmune diseases right. like lupus right. and so right. on. This is our own body going wrong. Now, heart disease, there's some stuff we can do about that. And, of course, we're making everything worse with our with our diets and the way that we're living. Uh, but ultimately, it, it really is a, an immune system uh, action that, that's causing that. Um, cancer is another beast altogether. Cancer is something... Uh, I call it the beast that stalks us all, because ever since 
life evolved from one cell into multi-cells, this was going to be a problem. Hmm. Um, because normally when a cell divides, if it's a bacterial cell, one cell becomes two, and they're each independent life forms. They go their own way. Well, we have, we have lots of cells in our body, and they all can divide. Most of them can divide. Something goes wrong, and they divide uncontrollably. That leads to cancer. And it is inevitable. Cancer really will strike all of us if you live long enough because mm-hmm. every time a cell divides, it's a chance for a mutation. Right. And those mutations are random. The bad ones will eventually get you. It's a roll right. of the dice every right, time. Right, right, right. And you have a ton of cells and it's bound to happen, like you said, eventually. Exactly. It will. Bob Weinberg, I first heard him say it this way, you will get cancer. Maybe you'll die of something else first, mm. but if you live long enough, you will get cancer. And in fact, most people are living long enough to get cancer multiple times. Um, so, I mean, we, I think we'll delay it. We'll get better. But it, it is the beast that stalks us all. I want to ask you about a big uh, question that uh, really perplexed me, which is, um, as we've talked about, The goal of evolution is to get us to reproduce, sort of period, the end. But something like 10% plus or minus of couples have trouble reproducing. That seems completely – it it seems like if there was one thing that evolution could do right, it would be that, right? And everything else could just fall to pieces after that. Um, why why is that? I mean, 10% is a lot of people. It's a whole lot of people. Right? Why is that an issue? It, you know, and that's exactly how I frame it in the book. It's like there's nothing that could be more under the scrutiny of natural selection right. than reproduction, and, right. and we still struggle with it. I mean, the different kinds of infertility all have different uh, reasons behind them. The thing that makes humans the most unique in this is our really high rate of infant mortality and maternal mortality. Hmm. Um, and this is something that modern medicine has largely solved. But if you go back even just 100 years ago, uh, lots of women died in childbirth. Lots of infants died either during childbirth or quickly thereafter. And that's just not in keeping with any other animals. If you've ever seen a, a gorilla give birth, it's like she doesn't notice. She continues eating and caring for other. It's not a painful, horrific, dramatic process. I mean, cows Something will just sort of walk away. And, yeah, yeah. It's it's like nothing, nothing to report. Nothing interesting here. Um, it's just. But but what we've done is we evolved these huge brains at the cost of childbirth, and so that that that's a great example of mm. how we sort of lost sight of the physical form in order to evolve these big brains because these big brains can, are so useful in so many different ways that we sort of. We sort of tolerated the, Mm -hmm. um, in terms of evolutionary numbers, Mm -hmm. uh, all of the mortality that came with it. But that's just sort of the last step of fertility. Um, Early on, just a a sperm and an egg coming together, a third of those times don't get it right. And these are the the, the, sort of the infertility that you would never see. It doesn't end up in a pregnancy. Hmm. So we lose a lot of our potential humans just even before development even really starts. Hmm. A lot of embryos get started, do their thing, and then just bounce right off the uterine wall and don't, don't take hold. And a lot of it, we have no idea why not. I was going to ask you, do we know, are there other species that have infertility problems that we know about? Not like us, okay. not in our kinds of numbers. Let me just give you an example. In laboratory experiments with mice, a lot of times they want to make what's called a pseudo-pregnant female. So do you know, do you know how you trick a mouse into thinking it's pregnant? Is you just simply have it 
let it have sex with a vasectomized male, and she will automatically start behaving pregnant. That's mm. how efficient pregnancy is in mice. Is her body just assumes she's pregnant now. Right, she had right. sex, so she must be pregnant. I mean, that's mm. always going to follow. Right. Uh, and, of course, we know that that's not true in humans. I mean, if we got uh, pregnant every time we had sex, we would have covered the entire planet in, in humans by now. Right. We're just very much out of step with our fellow, even just our fellow mammals. Um, I, I think the better example for us is actually like oak trees. You know, every every year there's <laughs> thousands of acorns. To oak trees. Yeah, <laughs> thousands of acorns, and maybe one or two will actually grow up into an oak tree. That's that's sort of how we are. Hmm. You know, we talked about a lot of mistakes. What was do you think like the driving force in most of these mistakes? Was this just like random? You know, a toss of the dice, the body kind of got it wrong. I think each and every flaw has a different story behind it. And that's really why I wrote the book, actually, because each one of the backstories is very interesting. It tells us a little bit about our past. Um, They're like scars uh, from a battle won. And and then that's the upside is we did win the battle. We're still here. So we have these flaws. We have these limitations. Uh, Most of them really reveal something about how we have succeeded, not just how we fail, but how we've succeeded. Mm Mm-hmm. Nathan Lentz is the author of Human Errors, a panorama of our glitches, from pointless bones to broken genes. He's also a professor of biology at John Jay College at the City University of New York. Nathan, thank you very much. It's a pleasure. So there are a few body parts I've always been a little confused about. The tonsils, wisdom teeth, and the appendix. Do you really need those things, or are they just evolutionary mistakes? Nathan Lentz gives his quick take on it at our website, innovationhub.org. Sometime this year, the winner is going to be unveiled. There will be chest thumping and back slapping and smug looks, maybe partying in the streets. There will also be angry people on the losing end, as there always are. But when Amazon does the big reveal and announces the location of its second headquarters, the question of who the real winners and losers are might not be nearly as clear as the headlines suggest. Because remember, to woo Amazon, cities have offered up billions of dollars in tax incentives and free workforce training and all sorts of other perks. Bloomington, Minnesota suggested building a monorail. Stonecrest, Georgia said it would rename itself to Amazon, Georgia. Boy, I've never seen anything like this. You know, it's a reality show with, you know, 238 contestants. Nathan Jensen is a professor of government at the University of Texas at Austin. And he says it's important to remember that this is not just a story about Amazon. He's originally from Wisconsin, which has been aggressive about giving incentives to paper products manufacturer Kimberly Clark in a bid to save 600 jobs. And it has put billions on the table for the Taiwanese manufacturer Foxconn. And Wisconsin's actually in a very difficult position right now that there's a declining funding for education. The UW, University of Wisconsin system is under fire. Some of the liberal arts majors are being canceled at University of Wisconsin Stevens Point. So you see this state that, I mean, literally struggling with education financing, which is one of the clear benefits of why you would want to go to Wisconsin in the first place. At the same time, you know, subsidizing Foxconn, which was $3 billion, but the estimates are now about $4.5 billion um, in subsidies for Foxconn. 
Jensen is a co-author of the book Incentives to Pander, How Politicians Use Corporate Welfare for Political Gain. He has studied what happens when companies are offered lavish packages to come to town. It's what he calls the winner's curse, which Jensen explains this way. Well, I think the best example are the Winter Olympics, that mm-hmm. if you, you can attract the Olympics with enough money in small town in Russia, for example, with enough billions of incentives, but it's not clear that that's a good economic development strategy. So on, on one hand, you know, the question of any of these incentive offers, are they actually coming because of the incentives? Or are they coming because of the workforce, the location, the quality of the existing infrastructure? So you might be giving money for something that's coming anyways. And then the second part is just the costs are enormous. And often there's tax incentives. So you're basically cannibalizing your future tax base. Mm. At the time where you have workers moving into town, you have expansion demands and the schools are going up at the same time. It's difficult to finance it. So what you're saying is like, you're like, gee, we've got all these new workers. We need another elementary school. Um, or there's so many people stressing the roads, we got to fill in some more potholes or reinforce that bridge because it's kind of a mess. And that company, call it Amazon, but this can be true of other companies too, like they're not paying very many taxes. So you can't use their taxes to build the elementary school or rebuild the bridge. I think that's exactly it. And and often these incentive programs, the biggest critics are school districts or education associations that hmm. they see that this really does cannibalize often because it's the local taxes that are being abated, which go to the schools at the time when there's an increasing demand for, again, building schools, more teachers. This is one of the big opponents of many of these incentive programs. Can you give an example of a city, a state that offered an incentive to a company to come and then kind of as you were talking about before, winning and somehow turned into uh, losing in a sense? Yeah, there's a there's a few stories in North uh, in North Carolina, a small um, city that attracted, um, I, I believe it was Amazon data center. And this data center, you know, was the promise of generating jobs and capital mm-hmm. investment. But, you know, for the most part, these data centers, I mean, their capital investment, it sounds great, but it's just servers sitting on a piece of land. It's not really generating any other economic development. Most of the engineers are flying in from, you know, the headquarters or from other parts of the country. Hmm. There's not that many jobs being created. So you're kind of carving out this in the middle of nowhere, a data center that has really very little positive impact. But then there's some demands for more power, for more water. Um, And it's one of these classic examples that, boy, it, it sure doesn't seem to have had any positive impact on economic development. There's also stories um, like Discovery Communications in Silver Spring, Maryland. They've just decided to move their company. So you also you know, have these investments in incentives with this belief that in the long run it'll pay out. For these companies, you know, many companies go bankrupt. Many companies change their strategies. They move. So if you're banking on a return 25 years down the road, and this is one of the Texas Economic Development Programs, they want to make sure it pays back within 25 years. That's a pretty long time horizon just at upfront to figure out whether or not it makes sense. I have a newborn, a seven-month, uh, eight-month-old little daughter, so it's like she'll graduate college and finish law school and we'll <laughs> right, finally right, right. be breaking even. Right. That's a long time horizon. When were you saying about Discovery that they moved to Silver Spring, like they got incentives, but now they're leaving? Yeah, and, and there's, a, there's quite a few of these examples. There's a bunch of really negative examples in the Kansas City area where often called the Kansas City Border War, where companies move back and forth across the Kansas and Missouri border, and they're counted as a new investment 
even though the workers probably aren't moving. There's no real change in impact in Kansas. You know, you move four miles one direction, sure, you cross the border. Right. But it's not going to clearly have any other different economic impacts. So then Kansas City is a pretty clear example of, you know, just shifting back and forth, just companies maximizing their their tax benefits. I want to stay on that for a minute because you do talk in your book about this war between Kansas City, Missouri and Kansas City, Kansas, which, as you say, close together. But there's this huge, at least there was this huge sort of war over like throwing incentives at companies to get them to move from one Kansas City to the other Kansas City. And you tell the story of Applebee's. Uh, do you want to tell, like, what happened with Applebee's, the corporate headquarters of Applebee's? You know, in some sense, you, there's a lot of finger po- pointing in Missouri and Kansas. Who started it? Um, you often hear them talk to each other like it's World War One. They talk about, <laughs> we'll disarm if you disarm. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's Applebee's moving across the border and then moving back, right. getting new incentives for a small, you know, 20-mile move. I don't, I don't remember the exact distance. But, you know, we've seen quite a bit of that. And and there's a foundation in the Kansas City area. This Hallmark is one of the big companies, the Hall Family Foundation, where they've documented the amount of companies that have gone back and forth hmm. across the border. And, and the net impact is basically just shifting the deck chairs around, right. but no real new economic development. Right, right. And, and the amazing thing about Applebee's, I'll just say, is they made a move uh, from one Kansas City to the other Kansas City, got a cash in all these incentives, and then not that long later, they cut a whole bunch of jobs and moved to, like, basically the L.A. area. Yeah. Like, yeah. they were like, I mean, thank you very much for your money, and now we're moving. You know, and that tells you something about these firm strategies. I mean, their location decisions actually aren't all about the incentives. Of course, if you're in the Kansas City area, you can play this game shifting back and forth across the border. There's some economic development consultants that will look for lease expiration. So your lease is expiring in Kansas City, Kansas. We'll call you up and say, you can move to Kansas City, Missouri, and we can get you incentives. You know, we'll take a third of them, but you'll get the other two-thirds. But in Applebee's case... They were consolidating their national operations, and it made economic sense for them to move to California. So despite all these kind of lucrative incentives, when it really became a business case, they moved to the L.A. area. And I think this is the other great example that often these big incentives, even when they're really, really large, they're nothing compared to the geographic reasons to to locate somewhere, the human capital reasons. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So in some sense, we're playing this really expensive game that might not really even shift that much investment. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Nathan Jensen, a professor at the University of Texas at Austin. He's the co-author of the book Incentives to Pander, How Politicians Use Corporate Welfare for Political Gain. Can you possibly take politics out of it and like align the incentives of the politicians and the public? Because right now, politicians generally stay in office like four years, eight years, maybe 12 years. That's not very long. Whereas the public may live in, you know, Wisconsin or wherever for a long time. Um, they have to deal with things 20 years down the road. Is there any way to, like, align those incentives or, or just take politics out of it completely? I mean, the United States is interesting because many other countries offer their incentives at the national level. Okay. So you don't see this competition locally. And then in many countries in Europe in particular, the European Union limits the amount of state aid that can be provided. So there's, in some places, there's limitations mm-hmm. knowing that politicians are going to want to do this. But after that, it's difficult to see exactly why a um, politician would give up this lever. Because 
for the most part, although sometimes when the scale gets so large, there's a backlash. But the smaller incentives, voters seem to think that they're pivotal in attracting companies. So politician offers an incentive, a company comes, they have a ribbon-cutting ceremony, and they take credit for it. Yeah. So the political incentives aren't just the time horizon. Um, it's the idea that you need something really public that shows you're generating jobs, right. and there's nothing really more public than this. Right, and they're respond. You're saying politicians are doing this because they're responding to what voters want. And that's what we, we talk about pandering in our book, that voters think these things matter, mm -hmm. and in some sense that makes them more willing, at least without any context, when they don't think about the trade-offs. If you actually talk about the trade-offs in education funding, whoa, voters start to shift more and saying maybe these incentive programs aren't a good thing. But if you can control the rhetoric, yeah, they're pretty popular. Right. Is there a way of crafting bids that is fairer, that results in something better, that does not result in no taxes coming into the city, that sort of thing. Is there a way of setting this up in a better way? Yeah, I mean, I think there are a couple simple ideas, and especially if, if we're just realistic that many of these states and cities aren't going to give up these programs completely, how do we make them more effective? One simple way is you know, New Jersey offered, I believe it was 45 to 50 years of tax abatements. That's a crazy time horizon for two reasons. One, I mean, that's future politicians are going to be paying for this. Uh, but secondly, most analysis of firms' decisions is that they actually have pretty short time horizons, hmm. that their discount rate. So, so what's the value of a tax break right. today is high. What's it tomorrow? Less, 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 less. These discount rates are so, so high that basically an abatement after five years is not really going to offer anything of value to the company at the time of the decision, meaning cap abatements or tax limitations, benefits – for five years. Okay. And that's a simple, simple change that would dramatically reduce the cost of some of these programs. Right, right. It's interesting, too, because we talked about how politicians are not in office forever. Well, neither are CEOs, right? No, so they're probably right. not like, hmm, I wonder what our tax situation is going to be like in 30 years. You know, that's not their concern right now. It's probably like next quarter on Wall Street is much more their concern. Yeah, and, and this is the irony about these programs to some extent. You know, the thing that would be most valuable to these companies would be cash up front. Literally give us a cash grant. And, and a number of states <laughs> yeah. have what right. are called deal-closing funds. They do offer right. cash. Right. But the big dollar amount is often tax abatements because it's easier for politicians to give that. You don't have to get a budget allocation of money and hand it to the company. What you do is you just forgive their taxes. And in some ways, you don't even have to report how large these abatements are. Right. So the preferred political form of giving to firms is actually the least efficient um, in terms of swinging a firm decision. So I know it sounds odd, but if you're going to give an incentive, then give cash. Okay. And if you can't afford cash, you can't afford a tax abatement. <laughs> but the smartest one for the city, if people can swallow it politically, is give them cash. Give them, give them, ironically, give them cash. Yeah. Or give them something that's a value to the whole community. For example, workforce training. Mm -hmm. um, there's a number of right. workforce training programs that, you know, even if the company leaves after five years, you've invested in your community workforce uh, in a way or, or some infrastructure. The problem is a lot of the infrastructure is often very much dedicated towards mm -hmm. the company, like you're literally building a road to the new company headquarters. But if you're expanding your power grid, you're expanding your highway system, you know, that may be an investment that's worthwhile independent of the company. So it's kind of a double benefit. That's the sort of thing that if the company wasn't there, 
would you be interested in investing in this? And, right. and if the answer is a yes, then that's a better than giving these tax abatements. Do you worry that the Amazon headquarters, uh, the second headquarters, marks the beginning of an arms race that's only going to get worse? I think Jamie Dimon, the CEO of J.P. Morgan, was quoted not that long ago saying, I want what Amazon's being offered, like for J.P. Morgan. Yeah, I mean, that's it's a good question. I mean, I think this public call that Amazon did, I'm not sure that they're happy with the outcome. I'm not sure it generated as much positive press mm. um, as they, they had hoped. So um, Apple is looking for a fourth right. campus, mm-hmm. which is quite large. It does not look like they're doing this purely public call. Um, so I'm not sure that we're going to see too many other Amazon, but I do feel like the scale has, in some sense, desensitized us. Right. Um, I, but I think that actually started with Foxconn. I mean, Foxconn, three, four, four and a half billion dollars for, I mean, to be honest, is a kind of a glorified TV manufacturer. I mean, it's a lot of jobs, but it's not particularly high paying jobs. Mm-hmm. And to offer that size of incentive, I think that was actually more shocking to me than Amazon. Um, it's just the scale and, and that if communities are willing to give this amount up for manufacturing, it's hard to imagine what's going to be the next offer. When Amazon, when Apple looks for that fourth campus, what could they potentially get even without a public call for right, proposals? Right. Nathan Jensen is a co-author of the book Incentives to Pander, How Politicians Use Corporate Welfare for Political Gain. He's also a professor of government at the University of Texas at Austin. Nathan, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. By the way, Jensen says that bids that cities have made for Amazon are frequently impossible for citizens to read. Often a third party or a party that's not fully public, like a chamber of commerce or a consulting firm, they have helped to craft the bid. And there are also sometimes special exemptions to record requests when it comes to economic development. We've got more about the most famous package of incentives delivered to a company over the past couple of years, the $7 million in grants and tax help that went to Carrier in Indiana. That's all at innovationhub.org. In the fall of 1918, a man in his mid-30s got sick. He was a relatively powerful man, an assistant secretary of the American Navy, and by the time he got sick, it was clear that his illness was part of an epidemic sweeping the globe, an epidemic that would kill upwards of 50 million people. And though that assistant secretary, whose name was Franklin Delano Roosevelt, did get better, and he actually went on to contract polio a few years later, the illness that sickened him in 1918 reshaped our world. It was the Spanish flu, which might not roll off your tongue when you think about the most important events of the 20th century, but it likely killed more people than the First and Second World Wars combined. So what happened was they would start out with the same symptoms of flu that you and I know in a normal flu season, if we're unlucky, sore throat, fever, headache. And then the unlucky minority would uh, start to have trouble breathing. They would turn blue in the face. Blue would turn to black. And at that point, there was really no chance of recovery. And it depended on the individual, but it could take hours or days, um, but they would die. Laura Spinney is the author of the book Pale Rider, The Spanish Flu of 1918 and How It Changed the World. And she says, by the time the flu came along, the world had been at war for years and people were exhausted. 
a lot of people thought they were in a sort of Sodom and Gomorrah and, you know, that, that it was the end. They had invited this huge um, punishment from God. The Spanish flu, which, by the way, was not Spanish. It was called Spanish because Spain printed more information about the flu than many other countries. It killed at least 30 times more people than die in a regular flu season. It also altered the way we think about all sorts of things, from viruses to preparing for pandemics. So why is the Spanish flu something that society has consigned to the dustbin of history? Laura Spinney says it may all come down to the power of narrative. I think that wars lend themselves much more easily to storytelling than Mm -hmm. pandemics. You know, there are villains and heroes, which Mm -hmm. there aren't really in a pandemic. Mm -hmm. There's a sort of beginning, uh, a middle and an end, Mm -hmm. whereas the Spanish flu just sort of struck. People were completely bewildered and then it had practically gone by the time they'd realized what had hit them. Mm -hmm. So, as you said, even though it was a much bigger disaster in terms of the number of victims, it kind of got lost in that easier story to tell. Mm -hmm. I wonder, too, if in some ways the Spanish flu, kind of like World War I with a lot more lethal warfare than we'd ever seen, was the story of like the modern world emerging. And, you know, I told that story about FDR, got the Spanish flu, recovered, but got it. And when he got it, I believe he was on a ship from France to New York, which just spoke to like this was a world in which global trading routes and military routes and stuff had had really permeated the world. We were a global society. And the downside of that was the flu hitched a ride on that. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think we talk about the First World War as the, as the kind of failure of science um, because it caused death on an industrial scale. It gave us the weapons and the technology that allowed us to kill vast numbers of young men in an industrial way. But if you think about the flu, it was also a massive failure of science because science and medicine had nothing to offer to combat this disease. And, you know, it's kind of no coincidence that they happened at at the same time. The experts uh, pretty much agree that the reason the Spanish flu was so bad was because it erupted in a world at war. Now, the, the pandemic itself would probably have happened anyway. But the thinking is that it was much, much, much worse because it emerged into a world where people were... Um, being displaced in large numbers, whether it be by troop movements or, you know, refugee Mm -hmm. um, migrations, people uprooted from their homes. There was famine in large parts of the world. People were being deprived of their normal, um, you know, the infrastructure of normal daily life, which was upset in much of the world. And that included access to health care. So all of these factors fed in to make it a much worse disaster than it might have been, Mm -hmm. we think. I mean, obviously, we have no other alternative reality to compare it to. But we do have some telling numbers. The previous flu pandemic, which was the so-called Russian flu of the 1890s, killed an estimated one million people. We've had three flu pandemics since 1918, and none of them killed more than about uh, three million people each. Mm. So when you think that the Spanish flu killed between 50 and 100 million, it's a massive anomaly and it has to be explained somehow. Mm -hmm. And the thinking it is because of this synergy between war and flu. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Laura Spinney. She's author of the book Pale Rider, The Spanish Flu of 1918 and How It Changed the World. Do you think that the Spanish flu changed forever how people see science and medicine? 
I think it did. I think, uh, first of all, it was a deep shock to scientists themselves and to the medical community who realized that they had been complacent um, and their knowledge had not helped at all in this disaster. And you can essentially date the um, birth of the field of virology from 1918. I mean, people had been studying viruses before that, but they did not understand them at all. And they thought that almost all infectious disease was caused by bacteria. So this was a massive wake up call for them. In terms of the general population, at the time, there was an interesting divide, really, because in the parts of the world that had not embraced germ theory, a lot of people turned towards science as if this is the cutting edge of knowledge, we need to embrace it in order to stop such disasters happening again. And they turned away from their old folk healers and their medicine men and their shamans. But in the industrial world, there was the completely opposite reaction because they'd had the medicine, they had the cutting edge medicine and they'd seen it didn't work. So there was quite a big anti-science sort of backlash at that time. And one um, outcome of that that's quite interesting, I think, is that it's from the 1920s that alternative and complementary medicines began to gain a sort of new respect and a new following Hmm. because people were sick of mainstream medicine and Hmm. they were looking for alternatives. When we think back like 100 years, um, we're talking about a population of humans on the earth that was less than 2 billion people. And I just wonder if having potentially 100 million people die from the flu, if that like reshaped the demographics of the world. Yeah, I think it had a massive effect. So for a start, it purged, um, to use a kind of uh, biological term, the global population of a lot of sick people, including a lot of people with TB. Hmm. So you saw a massive jump in life expectancy right after the Spanish flu. You also saw a baby boom in the 1920s, which traditionally has been put down to the end of the war, the men coming back and and a wave of new conceptions. But you also see a baby boom in neutral countries. And one of the kind of new lines of thinking is that the population of survivors was just that much healthier. They're the ones Mm. who survived. So by definition, they were more robust. Mm -hmm. And they were now able to reproduce at a higher rate. So it's in a way kind of reassuring to think that biology has these mechanisms for correcting itself after Mm. huge disasters. Mm -hmm. Obviously, that's I'm talking there at the population level, and there had been a huge loss in terms of individuals. But uh, humanity did recover, and quite quickly. Right. Let's look ahead. It's been 100 years since uh, the outbreak of the flu. And you talk about that as being, you know, the the 1918 flu. Since the Black Death, since basically the 14th century, nothing had been as big a deal in terms of an epidemic. Do you think it's inevitable that we're going to have some similarly disastrous epidemic sometime down the line? I think it's absolutely inevitable that we have another flu pandemic Uh, And I think, you know, there's likely to be pandemics of other diseases as well, not just flu, although flu is considered a particularly big risk. The size of that pandemic is a much more difficult question to answer because of what has changed since 1918. I mean, for a start, as you say, the population is much bigger. It's about roughly four times what it was in 1918. The population has aged and we know that the immune system weakens with age. Uh We're much better connected than we were then in terms of travel links. There are very few remote corners of the world that could be protected from such an infection. But we also have more weapons, you know, in terms of medicine. We have more in our medicine cabinet. Um, And so it's a difficult one to judge, but I I can give you one number. In 2013, the World Bank estimated that a new flu pandemic would kill in the region of 33 million people. 
when you, after you finished doing all this research about um, the the Spanish flu of 1918, is there a way in which, um, you know, you see the world differently or is there a story that you think about that kind of, that sticks with you even now that, you know, you didn't know about before? So um, there are two things that I think are really interesting. I mean, there's many, but I'll pick two out. The first is about the children who were in their mother's wombs Hmm. in 1918. Hmm. Now, some of those didn't survive because, as I said, pregnant women were themselves very vulnerable to the disease. So they died in many cases with the um, fetuses in their wombs. But when those children were born they were diminished cognitively and physically for the rest of their lives. You know, they were less likely to graduate, less likely to earn a a good wage, more likely to go to prison, things like that. So the effects of what happened to them in the womb, you know, lasted for the whole of the 20th century. That generation is only just passing now. So I think that gives an indication of the need to prevent pandemics to the extent that we can, because they have very long-term effects. And the other thing I wanted to say was about the social inequality which shapes pandemics. So, for example, in South Africa, whites blamed blacks for the disease. And in my book, I argue that it accelerated the process to apartheid, Hmm. which was put in place soon after. When President Thabo Mbeki a few years ago claimed that AIDS was not a viral disease and suggested that it be treated with beetroot and lemon juice and garlic, at first glance, what he was saying seems to be nonsense and doesn't make any sense. But if you look at it in the context of the long history of whites blaming blacks for disease in his country... And the terrible price that blacks paid for that, for example, in terms of segregation, which wouldn't be repealed for another 60 years, you can perhaps begin to understand how, you know, the way that people perceive infectious diseases is affected by very long-term factors. So not only do pandemics have long-term effects into the future, but the way that they are managed and understood has its roots often deep in the past. And if we can understand those two things, then I think we'll get more aware of the need to prevent pandemics in general. Hmm. Laura Spinney is a journalist, a novelist, and she's the author of the book Pale Rider, The Spanish Flu of 1918 and How It Changed the World. Laura, thank you so much for your time. (laughs) Thank you. Great questions. Though the world hasn't experienced an influenza epidemic as devastating as the Spanish flu in the past century, the flu does kill hundreds of thousands of people every year. And many think America could do a much better job combating it. We've got a link to articles looking at how we could do that. That's at our website, innovationhub.org. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Matt Purdy, associate producers Mark Sollinger and Mark Filipino, and engineer Doug Sugertz. We also had production help from Alec Graney and Rowena Lindsay. From PRI and WGBH Radio... I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. PRI, Public Radio International.